Welcome back to Off The Fence. I'm James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. We're here for another week. Storm Dennis uh, got me completely drenched on the way here. You're bone dry. Yeah, I'm fine. I just arrived half an hour later. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, involvements with the BBC and the government in terms of how the BBC is funded and proposals for change with the BBC. And we're also going to talk about the kinds of weirdos and misfits Dominic Cummings' uh, various recruiting drives have turned up. We are also going to touch upon the US Democratic primary, obviously an update on that race, what we think about that with the Nevada caucuses coming up. First, though, there's been a cabinet reshuffle. So this is obviously when all the government positions and ministers get moved around, some new people come in, some old people get the axe. And the main one of these is Rishi Sunak, the new chancellor, taking out Sajid Javid. Sajid Javid was actually offered to stay on if he fired all of his advisors, and he wouldn't do that, so he quit. Which is wild, because, you know, he was supposed to be the sort of architect of all this going forward. He was famously uh, a major uh, rival of Boris Johnson's in the leadership election, in as much as uh, Johnson had any meaningful rivals in that uh, process. And, yeah, no, he he sucks. He was like a... he was a Ayn Rand guy. He's, he's much more of a Thatcherite than kind of the people in government at the moment that want to increase government spending a little bit more... There's a bit of tension with that. Sure, and he had been lining up a budget and a manifesto that was looking to be another austerity budget. So, you know, that kind of thing is... You know, it was it was supposed to be ongoing. Sajid Javid was very Brexity after the fact. But before the fact, before the referendum, I think he was originally a Remainer, right? He was kind of these born-again leavers who the kind of really hard Brexiteers never really accepted, I think, as like an actual Brexiteer. So when this new uh, Chancellor came in, who's very much kind of a yes man to Boris Johnson, kind of just literally will go along with everything. Yeah, he's an empty suit. A lot of the uh, hard Brexiteers are saying, we finally got like a a proper Brexiteer in the Treasury and in his Chancellor. Was he a proper Brexiteer or is he just a cipher for them to project (laughs) onto? Yeah, potentially. We'll see how that goes. They've replaced one banker with a new banker. That's essentially it. He's ex-Goldman Sachs, right? And he's also married to a billionaire. So he's really going to be in touch with the kind of economic yeah, yeah, demands of... The, the people's government, right? Yeah, exactly. Let's get on to the main discussion tonight. The BBC. Sunday Times reported this story. Uh, the Downing Street is vowing to scrap the television licence fee and make viewers pay a subscription. So instead of paying your £140, £150 television licence fee, it'll be more of a Netflix-style... Amazon Prime style subscription model. What does that realistically mean in in reality? Because that's kind of what the TV license is anyway, right? Or is it just that like if you only watch uh, Channel 4 and ITV because you have a dead brain, you'd like you just want to watch Take Me Out until your eyes burst. Um, does that mean that theoretically you could get a TV and watch those without ever having to pay for a license? Potentially. Um, Some people pointed out that this story broke in the Sunday Times, which is obviously a website. It's a newspaper originally, but, you know, the website digital version has a paywall. And obviously, if you went to read this story and you didn't have a subscription, you'd need to pay a subscription fee to the Sunday Times, which is far in excess of the BBC television license fee, which obviously you get a lot more for, for that amount of money you get. You see what I'm saying? It's quite quite an ironic situation. But there's more here. The national broadcaster could also be compelled to downsize and sell off most of its radio stations. So, one, scrap the license fee and replace it with a subscription model. We've had that. But force the BBC to sell off the vast majority of its 61 radio stations, but safeguard Radio 3 and Radio 4. I mean, interestingly, they're saying keep Radio 4, which is like the BBC's one of the top top radio stations. But it is one that Number 10 have literally said we're going to boycott. It's, it's interesting how the government are like, yeah, we'll keep that one that we're never going to engage with. So it's an interesting tactic there. Uh, reduce the number of the corporation's national television channels from its current 10. Doesn't say how many to, though. They could be reduced to eight. Could be reduced to one. Not very clear. So what, a lot of room for scope there to manoeuvre. They could bring it down just to two. So what is their rationale for this? They're saying it's bloated. There's far too much going on on the website. They're obviously, politically, they've got a lot of stock <clears throat> in their base of getting rid of the licence fee. Yeah, but they want to go forward and reduce it. This is the thing. Like, it, what, their justification, like, 
how are they quantifying too bloated? How are they quantifying that it does too much? Is it not adequately served currently by the license fee uh, situation? I well, it's not just a license fee. They're saying it costs too much, essentially. And obviously, we've got a, a history of look at the last election where the, <laughs> the BBC's coverage of the Labour Party and the, and the left in the last election was pretty much a joke. Like, yes, they we, almost we had, had a, our complaints. Yeah, the BBC almost had a worst election in the general election 2019 than the losing party did. Like, in terms of like where they stacked up in terms of credibility. Anyway, we've also got a few more bullet points here. Scale back the BBC website. They're saying there's far too much bloat going on there according to the Again, government. What does too much mean? They're just saying things. They're just making <laughs> assertions without any sort of actual argument being made. Like... Is this just a thing that they can do? They can go into like a, a a furniture showroom and go. There are too many things in here. Well, I mean, I wouldn't put it past conservatives to say there's too much bloat in any public service, right? I mean, this is my assumption <laughs> that it, it's fundamentally an arbitrary way of scolding a public service. Uh, we've also got invest more in the world service. That's where they see apparently as the actual role of the BBC because that one's commercial right yeah uh, and also I mean, it, it is kind of commercial but that's that's why that's what their rationale and is, it kind right? of projects soft power for the for Britain as well and to a certain degree they also say ban BBC stars from cashing in with lucrative second jobs interesting that one because we that, do that for MPs yeah it's literally what I was gonna say is like that's actually pretty good I think a lot of people would would love that can we extend that to you know members of parliament as was actually in the Labour Party manifesto in the last election, I'm sure a lot of people would like to see people at the BBC and people in Parliament not taking lucrative second jobs. Although, what does lucrative... Se like, does that mean if you're in a BBC drama, you can't also be in a Hollywood film? Like, what does that realistically mean? True. What does any of this fucking realistically mean? We've got this from a senior number 10 source. Quote, We are not bluffing on the licence fee. We are having a consultation and we will whack it. It has to be a subscription model. They've got hundreds of radio stations. They've got all these TV stations and a massive website. The whole thing needs massive pruning back. Why? What does any of that fucking... Th these are just assertions. They aren't linking together. Why is the current license fee system inadequate to deal with this? Is it just that they aesthetically dislike that it's such a large corporation with so many outlets and so they're just starving it back because they dislike it from a sort of philosophical perspective they haven't actually specified an argument as to why the current system is inadequate let's have a look at another quote from that same number 10 source outlining the situation they want to see happen so this is their proposals of what the bbc should look like they should have a few tv stations a couple of radio stations and a massively curtailed online presence. Why? And put more money and effort into the world service, which is part of its core job. I can understand a situation where if you're someone who wants the state to be pretty small, seeing a public service broadcaster with like seven radio stations and going, I don't like that. Then they can at least have the decency to fucking tell us that yeah, that's exactly. what it is. That it's be a... honest about where you are ideologically. Yeah. <laughs> Just be um, like, oh, we don't like the BBC. And so this is a step in scaling it back. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the BBC on the left. We'll come in to discuss this in, in another sort of segment in a second. We've discussed that. But yeah, seeing... go, go back and listen to our interview with Tom Mills. Yeah. We'll read his book, BBC Myth of the Public Broadcaster. But it's not just, you know, people on the left that might be alarmed that a public service broadcaster might be being attacked because traditionally those are the people that would normally defend it, right? But we've also got some Conservative MPs reacting here. Damien Green, I guess one of the One Nation Tories, the more centre of the party... I hope the Sunday Times story about the BBC is kite flying. Destroying the BBC wasn't in our manifesto and would be cultural vandalism. Quote, vote Tory and close Radio 2. Really? Well, I mean, he has kind of got a point to a degree. You can tell that this is kind of red meat for the kind of really hard Brexit supporting base that are currently supporting the Conservatives. But the BBC is polling pretty high at 80%. And we've got trust levels in journalists and different outlets when you poll them the BBC comes up on top above all the others if they were to close Radio 2, Radio 1 Radio 5 Live <laughs> Radio 6, if all this stuff was just to go, right? There wouldn't exactly be a lack of an uproar about it. Yeah, I mean the the visual of them like diminishing this sort of iconic British cultural thing to this extent might well backfire against them I mean, it's certainly not going to win them any votes with people under the edge of... I mean, they are polling really well right now, up into the high 40s. Anyway, 
there's a lot of problems with the BBC. We've been very critical of it. But essentially, the situation you see a lot of people on the left doing at the moment is saying, just yeah, we should just get rid of it. Because everyone is so frustrated with how the BBC have been and the fact that over the past four years. And the fact that it's demanded that they contribute to it. Yeah, and, and we've, we've seen a situation where BBC journalists seem to be completely out of hock with giving the left a fair shake in comparison to the Tories. And they'll say, oh, it's fine, we, we criticise the Tories as well, right? That's, that, that means we, we've criticised everyone. And we also get, a, we, you know, we get criticism from the left and from the right. So we've yeah, got yeah. to be doing our job right. If if two if the two people you view as being the two sides of a thing, uh, both criticise you, <laughs> that means they're both definitely wrong and you are right. But also like the obvious one is like us saying it seems like your your coverage is relatively partial and the mistakes that you make only ever seem to benefit one side, which is kind of contiguous with the political background that many of your major correspondents already have, which already comes from one specific side and the other side goes oh they're piping communism into our schoolrooms to make our kids gay the idea <laughs> yeah. that those are like comparable criticisms yeah. or you've got to take to each, be taken both seriously you've got to like, weigh each claim one claim could be complete bollocks and one claim could be valid yeah obviously that the right are probably going to say the opposite they're going to say the same about the left yeah right but i mean it, it's um it's it's not to be a fucking like a logical fallacy guy, but it, it's the basic golden mean fallacy. It's basic like it's between two things, so therefore it must be better than e- the, that of either side. Now there's a lot, all those criticisms we've kind of laid out there. Okay, so what should we do? Should we just get rid of the BBC? Like a lot of people on the left seem to be frustrated and saying right now, just yeah, just just scrap it. Well, the yeah, op- no, I, the, want, the, I the, want our British media to be all Murdoch all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's look across at the Atlantic where. You know, they've got Fox News. They've got... It's just all corporate media, pretty much. Yeah, MSNBC sucks. CNN, like, deeply, like... deep, Also deeply bad in, like, similar ways. Like, not to say that these things don't do good reporting, but certainly their commentary wing is all fucking garbage. They do have some public service broadcasting in America, but it's nothing compared to what we have here. No, it's PBS and NPR, I think. The real response you should have is, these things need reforming we need to change them and make them more democratic we need to enhance them not scale them down not scrap them not close radio stations and tv channels um let's make them work and actually make them more democratic and here we can link in with what rebecca long bailey candidate to be labor leader has been coming out with today as well also reported in the sunday times uh, under reforms proposed by miss long bailey the government would lose the right to appoint the chairman of the bbc the corporation's most powerful official, who in turn selects its director general and drives its strategy. I mean, the problem with that is I would quite like Rebecca Long-Bailey to get into power, become prime minister, (laughs) uh, turn it into a genuinely communist (laughs) organisation. Like, I'd be interested to see what that looks like. Just, you know, the right wing are always saying, oh, it's just full of commies. Like, okay, let's see what that actually looks like. (laughs) Yes, let's let's just test that experiment. Um, Instead, a Labour government would devolve decision making to BBC staff, audience boards and members of the public as part of a, quote, democratic revolution in how the corporation is run. Top brass would be directly elected as a result of the shakeup. It's not too dissimilar from some of the reforms we saw proposed a few years back and a few months back in the general election from Labour about how editors should be elected by the journalists in their newsrooms. Miss Long-Bailey would scrap the charter renewal process in which the BBC renegotiates its budget and vision with the government every decade. The BBC's independence would instead be enshrined in law, while its funding would be outsourced to an independent body. So kind of delinking it from that kind of government control in terms of how money, much money it gets. And sometimes people think it's got this kind of deferential approach to the government, the BBC, having to jockey for, oh, we can't piss them off too much because they'll take the money out. Yeah, those all sound like really reasonable uh, reforms that would qualitatively make the BBC a better place, which is strange because I've heard that she's a sort of idiot communist. <laughs> The look on your face as you said that was perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just absolutely ideal really? for an audio medium. Yeah, really? Yeah, I mean, we've also got this proposal as well, though, which is where we actually come back to the government's proposals as well. Scrapping the BBC licence fee. Well, Rebecca long Bailey's proposing that she would also push the BBC to reconsider a Netflix-style subscription model. So she's saying she wants to do that instead of the licence fee. The difference is... She's saying she wants that for international audiences. Ah. Does that make more sense? That actually 
potentially might make more sense, you know? I mean, on a commercial basis, I'm not too familiar with the kind of how the BBC works in terms of making money outside of the UK. I haven't got all those notes in front of me right now. But essentially, you're, you, I guess it, for an international audience there, you're basically putting the BBC up against other subscription-style models and trying to kind of jockey for position with Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the likes of the others. But she says she would also force the BBC to host all programming on iPlayer and provide a digital home for other publicly funded content. So everything they make would be available on iPlayer. Instead of this kind of like, oh, it is, it is or it isn't, you know. Yeah, no, that all sounds really cool. Yeah, that makes, like seems like it would make sense, you know. Would also demand, quote, complete transparency on pay and diversity at the BBC as part of the package. I mean, let's be transparent about these things, yeah, about yeah. pay. I mean, particularly pay. I'm sure a lot of people want some diversity transparency as well about the makeup of the BBC. But I think people want to know how much these people are being paid. And this quote from Rebecca Long-Bailey, quote, we should not defend the status quo just because the Tories are attacking it. That's exactly what Downing Street wants, to present themselves as change and us as defenders of a broken system. I don't know, there is a part of me that wonders, is any of that really much better than going, it's too big, I don't like it, make it smaller? You, Which you, seems to be the entire conservative argument. So you're saying it's the kind of get Brexit done versus the nuance thing again? I'm mostly being facetious, I'll be honest. I I do that sometimes. I just uh, make fun of a position by like stating it badly for comedic purposes. Anyway, a lot of these changes apparently aren't due to come in that the government are proposing till 2027, right? So it's not like we're going to see this stuff in this parliament changing and we are going to have potentially another election in 2025 before then. I mean, one hopes. Yeah, <laughs> we might even have two or three the way the last five years has gone. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think Rebecca Long-Bailey's response there is kind of the bare minimum of what you should be seeing from a Labour leader on this issue of BBC democratisation and changes yeah, to the Yeah, but it doesn't BBC. say anything about towns, which does, of course, mean <laughs> it's just repeating a failing programme. Yeah. Let's move on to this hire. Yes. The call put out by Dominic Cummings for a number 10 staff of, quote, misfits and weirdos in the sort of bizarre post that he put up on his blog... Uh, has pulled a real sterling example in the hiring of Andrew Sabisky, uh, recruited for an unspecified project as a contractor. Uh, now, this guy's a, a weird dude. He identifies himself as a super forecaster, uh, based on, from what I can see, very little. He's kind of in his late 20s, knocked around a couple of places. Can you just describe to me or give me a definition of what a super forecaster is? You is know it to do with weather? Or? You know what a forecaster does? That looks ahead and predicts things in the future. <laughs> so this well, guy is like a kind of... A super forecaster. Imagine <laughs> one of those on god dang steroids. <laughs> and that's what a super forecaster... He's literally breaking out of t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just imagine he has like a business card that says like, Andrew Sabisky, super forecaster. <laughs> Anyway, from this, you would think, oh, he's, he's come up with such a cool name for him, himself, the super forecaster. Clearly, this guy must rule, right? Well, not so much. Uh, he's expressed a number of bizarre and bigoted views, which are drawing quite a bit of alarm. Um, now, like, an obviously really bad one is he once tweeted that women's sport is more comparable to the Paralympics than it is to men's. Hmm. Which is, like, Jesus fucking Christ. What? He's basically saying women are disabled, or he's he's yeah. He's, <laughs> I mean, and, and as a slur, that's kind of like yeah. He's basically just let, let's not put disabled people down, and let's also not. He's he's like he's trying to do like he's trying to hit all bases. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. It's it's, it's <laughs> who like, can I fucking piss off now? It's you know it's bad when this guy's basically gone like women are so bad at sports they're basically disabled. <laughs> oh, fucking hell! Like that's. That's, that doesn't work out well for anyone. That's, Jesus. That's, that's basically the position he's taking there. Um, but the yeah, the most the more alarming fact is that he appears to believe in a concept called eugenics. Uh, he uh, said in 2016, eugenics are about selecting four good things. Intelligence is largely inherited and correlates with better outcomes. Physical health, income, lower mental illness. Now, this is this probably deserves a bit of explanation. So. Genetic manipulation is the practice of intervening to raise or lower the frequency of certain genes or genetic groups within a population. And eugenics is the philosophical view that genetic manipulation 
uh, can be used to good ends. Now, the problem with this is, while eugenics positions itself as being a science or scientific, now the problem with this is, while it portrays itself as a science, science doesn't have very much to say about what is good or bad, and eugenics has a lot to say about what is good or bad, and so traditionally, eugenics throughout its practice, which really it's been around since the 1800s, really ever since the sort of uh, birth of, uh, you know, contemporary evolutionary theory and sort of post-Darwin era, it's mostly been used to smuggle the question of what kind of people do we think there should be fewer of into a sort of scientific mold. And to this extent, you know, eugenics can theoretically be, like, in its most indirect forms, things like, you know, introducing more bus routes and introducing trains to a country uh, means that communities can get around, meet new people, mix up a bit more. You have more genetic diversity, and if you think more genetic diversity and a hardy, hardier genetic stock is a good thing, which again is a philosophical claim, not actually a scientific claim. Like the the claim that the stock will become hardier and more resistant to certain things is a scientific claim, but it's a philosophical claim to then say that is good. That's a form of eugenics. But then you also have. Uh, mass ste mass sterilization, mass forced sterilization, or mass coerced sterilization. This was a huge thing. You used to sterilize addicts, uh, poor, like, poverty-stricken delinquents, sex workers. These were all people who were frequently forced to be sterilized. Uh, in America, many uh, free black people were forced to be sterilized so that they wouldn't, you know, contribute what was seen as determinatively inferior genetics into the general public and obviously the capstone of this was when you know in the 1930s and 40s germany decided that jewish people should not be able to you know pollute uh, the genetic stock of the aryans uh, with their genetic material and ultimately that was part of the logic that led to the holocaust now after that eugenics became quite unfashionable as a philosophy and as a like it, it sort of related kind of justifying and vindicating scientific pursuits became quite a bit harder to do until until 1994 a book called the bell curve was released now the bell curve was sort of the last hurrah of a geneticist called Richard Hernstein, who was one of the few people left over in the last generation of people who were really on the nature side of the nature versus nurture debate regarding human development. And he and a number of other people like uh, Philippe, J. Philippe Rushton and um, Arthur Jensen and a whole load of other uh, kind of, of the last people involved in this ended up kind of all pooling their research and Richard Hernstein uh, joined up with a political scientist called Charles Murray to create the bell curve, which was the sort of the last case for the ideas that uh, IQ, in like a measure of intelligence which can be represented as IQ accurately as a real thing, it can be tested for well that the intelligence that IQ measures is determinative of how well or poorly you will do in life. And the position that they take ultimately is they they kind of they bandy about it a bit and they say if if it seems like we're uh, settling on whether or not it's nature or nurture, uh, we've not explained our case properly. But then they go on to continue absolutely settled on the sides that it's primarily genetically determined, and they use this along with uh, you know IQ testing, which consistently shows that uh, Black Americans score lower than White Americans to effectively tacitly make the case that uh, black Americans are genetically bound to be inferior to uh, like white Americans and that, quote, low-income Americans uh, should be discouraged from having a lot of children through things like cutting back welfare, uh, stopping affirmative action into jobs and uh, educational institutions, and basically saying the inequalities that you see between black people and white people is not significantly down to any systemic factor. It is down to... Yeah, nothing societal about it. Or nothing not, to do with poverty. Not significantly. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that their genetic pool is of a less intelligent, and because less intelligent, bound to worse outcomes uh, kind of uh, situation compared to white people. It's It's... 
it's something that they kind of slip around as much as they possibly can, but it's fundamentally in there, and considering that this is one of the most discredited popular science books, it's not real science. Like, I can't stress enough, it wasn't published by a scientific press. It was published by a popular conservative one that published, I think, Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. They also published work from Dinesh D'Souza. Oh, what and a guy. <laughs> Ever, ever since then, this, you know, it, it doesn't come from a scientific background. It wasn't released for peer review. It wasn't give. They didn't give galley uh, copies to reviewers so that they could review it ahead of time. They released it. And ever since then, scientists have talked about how discredited it is. Uh, it's, it's treated as discredited, except among conservatives who treat it as the vindicating thing as to how where people are in life is justified by their innate qualities and we should stop trying to help them another way you know this isn't a scientific book is that it has policy prescriptions at the end based on the conclusions that they claim they haven't settled on firmly but they will say tear apart the welfare state focus on individualism allow the smartest people who will be almost exclusively white to rise to the top now this seems to be the kind of eugenicist that Andrew Sabisky is. This is very in line with the proposition. Andrew Sabisky being this new hire from Dominic Yeah. Uh, you know, he said, eugenics are about selecting four good things. Intelligence is largely inherited and correlates with better outcomes, physical health, income, lower mental illness. Now, these are all things that are put forward in the bell curve. And since then, a huge amount of study of genetics and uh, intelligence and a huge amount of sociology surrounding this has gone into discrediting the core assumptions that are used to justify his position here. But because it helps conservative policymakers, it stays popular. It's kind of it's one of these things that's it's popular among like mainline conservatives and also neo Nazis. Like because it, it justifies the same thing. It justifies a racial underclass. It justifies not doing anything to help these people and just allowing them to squalor where they are. And that appears to be the kind of eugenicist that this guy is. It, it lines up with roughly the kind of contemporary eugenicism that you see coming out of the bell curve set. And it's worth mentioning uh, that this would appear to correlate with beliefs of Dominic Cummings, who claimed back in 2014 that, quote, a child's performance has more to do with genetic makeup than the standard of his or her education. Which is, it can't be stressed enough, not true, but it is something that conservatives believe because the bell curve said it in 1994, and therefore it must be true. And so the, the fact that this, like, this wave of sort of neo-eugenicism is a prominent thing within the spads that are coming about at the moment is kind of deeply troubling because, as we've mentioned earlier, this philosophy ends up kind of just meaning that anyone who, like the most powerful people in society, look down on gets kind of eliminated from the population through various, like, whether through removing them from the gene pool or through, like, eradication. Eradication was a major part, of, and it is a form of genetic manipulation. And if you believe that certain kinds of genetic manipulation benefit society and thus, by implication, maybe should be taken. Like, elimination is a thing that eugenicist regimes have tried before. Uh, this is being seized on by other people in the government who are currently kind of at war with Cummings and his sort of machinations. Other conservatives as well. I mean, we've got this quote, first of all. <clears throat> Tory backlash against Sabisky with this quote. They've sacked various spads for little more than having lunch with someone they don't like. Yet, they're hiring people who believe in forced sterilisation... This is less one nation and more Ein Reich. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything to suggest he believes in forced sterilization. So that's actually, just to sidestep this, that's actually in reference to uh, another belief he holds, which oh. is not to do with uh, eugenics, I don't believe. I mean, maybe this comes under the, the banner of eugenics. Um, but uh, Andrew Sabisky in 2014, which is a mere six years ago, recent history, one way to get around the problems of unplanned pregnancies creating a permanent underclass would be to legally enforce universal uptake of long-term contraception at the onset of puberty. I mean, that's also a bell curve thing. One of the weird breaks from conservative orthodoxy is that they're very in favour of... Um like they're, they're very in favour of uh, con of introducing contraception uh, to 
solve its quote-unquote dysgenic effects. But where I would say that conservative kind of thought continues in that vein is that it's not like, yeah, giving women the choice. It's more like, no, we will decide for the women. Yes. Yeah, so we, yes. Will, we will force them to legally enforce universal uptake Which is of long-term contraception. absolutely a violation of the right to bodily autonomy. It's, yeah. it's a violation of a fundamental human right in a way that is it's like horrifyingly authoritarian. We will decide whether you have an abortion or not. And we will also decide whether you take contraception or not. Yeah, this this, this person is like... I don't want to say they're in the f- they're a fascist, but they're in the crossover where like conservatism and fascism kind of meld over one another, and he could really go either way. That is like genuinely chilling, like violating people's. Again, there is a eugenicist kind of tint to that. The idea that an underclass is created by unwanted pregnancies is. Trouble is is at the very least logically tenuous, but is like helped along a lot if you hold eugenicist views, and so it's difficult to say outright that like that's oh that's definitely his. It, it's extremely eugenics adjacent, and he's already we've confirmed a, a form of eugenicist. So why not throw it on? But more from the conservative kind of backlash on this. More tweets from Alex Wickham. I think you've got some of those there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're saying that they'll refuse to work with Andrew Sabisky, that they won't attend meetings where he's present or respond to his emails. They're telling Boris Johnson to overrule Cummings and sack Sabisky. Uh, Cabinet is now in open revolt against number 10 over Sabisky appointment. One source, did nobody consider Google? Jesus fucking Christ. How fucking dumb is this, quote, super forecaster? Interesting take on the people's government. A former government spad. Hiring this imbecile is an insult to those who came before it, which is a minor point I know, but Jesus wept, it makes me ashamed. But the thing here is, if this is grounds to sack Sabisky, it's also grounds to sack Cummings, because he's put forward the same basic ideas. Of course, we've got the likes of Toby Young coming out here, defending it. Like, Toby Young, who has <laughs> been the... exposed as going to various eugenicist yeah. uh, conferences. Um, and this guy, apparently, uh, Andrew Sabisky, was going to be going to sort of, you know, far-right stuff as well, like conferences or whatever. But yeah, Toby Young was basically saying, like, come on, guys, just because someone wants to talk about eugenics all the time doesn't mean they're a eugenicist. But also, he is a eugenicist because yeah. he was advocating <laughs> yeah. for eugenics as being a yeah. good thing. And the the, the thing is... Like, you also saw, for some reason, Richard Dawkins decided to stick his <laughs> oar in and decided to go, well, we can discuss the morality of eugenics, but the thing is, it works. It works for all these animals. Why can't... Humans are just animals. And it's like, I, I think you have to define what works there means. Genetic manipulation is a thing you can do, but, like, eugenics isn't just genetic manipulation. It's the philosophy that genetic manipulation can be used to achieve a sort of objective good and that becomes a much scarier thing because the objective good is not a scientific thing and so like his his position that it works well genetic manipulation works but that doesn't mean like eugenics can be used to make a better society we have no reason to believe that's the case the animals that we uh, we selectively breed and genetically modify aren't made better they're just made more suited to our purposes and the the inability to see that is a very common thing in eugenicists it's the thing that we've seen with all the people we've seen here where their position is well eugenics is just about making society better don't you want to make society better and the point is who's to say what makes society better to what extent it's genetic that's another major factor there are a lot of people who are extremely willing to attribute like genetic like genetic origins to all kinds of things including like we say sex work vagrancy uh addiction issues um things which also have a huge environmental factor which we could easily in- intervene with but they're conservatives they don't want to intervene in, in- environmental factors they want to say that these people are an underclass because of their genes. This is a sort of core issue. It takes the sort of fundamentally like questionable thing of assuming that you know what is best for the genetic destiny of our species and using that to intervene in what ways. Like selective genetic editing is maybe not the worst thing in the world, but long-term forced contraception that has a long and dark history of really, really brutal things. Like I, like we say, 
going up to ultimately justifying the Holocaust. The and the the like also the other mass killings that went alongside the Holocaust. The disabled and mentally handicapped were also slaughtered en masse for these reasons. For the same reasons, yeah. Yeah. This is the history of eugenics. This is what the philosophy of eugenics has been used for. And the fact that these people sworn into it with so little self-reflection that they can't even ask basic things like, is it your, do you have enough information to justify that you are determining the genetic destiny of our society? The fact that these people don't view it as necessary to even ask that is a real, like, is the reason why this is so scary and the reason why this is ground that does not get crossed. Because... The, you know, there were about a hundred years of people proving that we cannot be trusted to make those forecasts and act accordingly. Let's move on to the other side of the Atlantic, the US Democratic primary. Yes. Where there's still a whole host of candidates running to be the nominee. There are. To go up against Donald Trump. The Yang gang has fallen. Yeah, Yang is, he is left, he has left the field. Um, not long uh, after the results of the New Hampshire primary earlier this week came in, he dropped out. He wasn't getting loads of support, but it was significant amount of support that he had three to five percent to go somewhere else in certain states. Um, anyway, yeah, New Hampshire came out. Sanders won, not by the margin some people expected. Yeah. Pete Buttigieg came in a very close second, about one percentage point, one and a half percentage points behind him. Yeah. It turns out that his overwhelming win in 2016 was as like easily as much due to how much people there hated Hillary Clinton as it was about any personal uh, sort of virtues of his. Yeah, funny that, in hindsight, that maybe they shouldn't have gone with Hillary Clinton just because well, <laughs> that many people hated her. The, the most disliked uh, Democratic candidate in all of the party's history, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, the way I see it, um, Pete Buttigieg doing extremely well there and Bernie doing less well was kind of just the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses shambles. Because Pete Buttigieg's rise in those polls came just off the back of three, four, five news cycles of, oh, well, Pete won. And uh, it just being a kind of, or just ambiguity around who won. Pete declares victory. Yeah. Which is, you know, people see that and they go, oh, I guess the guy who declared victory won. Otherwise, he wouldn't have declared victory, right? Yeah. I mean, now going ahead, we've got the Nevada caucuses on Saturday coming. And they are, again, a caucus. But the difference we've got now compared to the previous two races is that this is uh, the first state where we see a more diverse population. There's a lot more Hispanic voters in the state. And these are demographics where the likes of the very moderate candidates like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, who are kind of jostling for position behind Bernie Sanders as the kind of challenging moderate candidate, Um, None of those people poll or do very well at all with these uh, other demographics, with uh, with Asian Americans, with Native Americans, with African Americans and with, you know, Hispanic Americans. Biden and Bernie are in like, I think, the 30s with uh, with uh, black voters. Yeah. Uh, Latino voters overwhelmingly go for Bernie. Like it's not even close to anyone else. And and that's going to be what's relevant here in Nevada. Yeah. And uh, people of color, generally speaking, don't care about Warren don't care about Buttigieg. Even seem to like distrust him. He has a, like a really bad record. With, <laughs> yeah, uh, we went like, through it on the last episode. Yeah, and uh, don't don't seem to know that Amy Klobuchar exists. Don't don't like her if they do. Like we say, uh, black voters really like Biden because he seems like he's electable, according to everyone who decides what electable is. <laughs> and uh, young black people like Bernie because he's good on things. Uh, Latino voters overwhelmingly at basically all ages really like him because the Latino population is very young. I think their average population in America is about 28. Uh, but also, uh, there was, there was an article I read about why they like him. So, and it's just that he seems very authentic. He doesn't seem like one of these, uh, Democrats who will move to the right by abandoning them. And, you know, that's a big deal to that community. Yeah. And these are all things that are going to be really important because, a thing about Iowa and New Hampshire, the first two things, is that they are very Super white. white states. And what we've got coming up with this state and then South Carolina and then on March 3rd, a whole slate of states. Much more diverse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the polling of people like Buttigieg and Klobuchar doesn't look so good there. No. Um, and then it's more a case of whether Biden has some kind of resurgence or not. I don't think he will. I think Bloomberg's going to take his place. Yes. And it's, I, I see it as really going to 
probably end up being a Bernie versus Bloomberg race. And here we have this billionaire going up against the guy who's railing against billionaires. I mean, could it be a better situation for Bernie in that regard? I mean, you would think, but also it can't be stressed enough how much money this guy is spending. Like, he, he yeah. is spending the interest on the money he has, and already it is enough to blanket the uh, blanket the airwaves in major target seats with things basically positioning him as, like, kind of having already won the primary, or at least it doesn't even touch on the primary. It's not like he's contending in the primary. He's not been involved in any of the states so far it, it's just him talking about how he will smash trump and the the question there is why like there's there's this sort of liberal received wisdom that he's the best person to take on trump because he's good somehow and in fact it turns out that when you look into his record uh, he's not good. No. Uh, <laughs> he's got lots of weaknesses. Massively racist policies, including particularly stop and frisk, uh, but also support for redlining, which is the informal process of segregating neighborhoods to keep property prices in white areas high by making it really, really hard for people of color to buy houses there. He's in favor of that. He blamed the prevention of redlining and the rendering of redlining as illegal as being one of the things that caused the 2008 financial crisis, which is a very, very common right-wing talking point to basically say, again, in the same kind of realm as the uh, the bell curve stuff, intervention in helping the black people uh, from the vicious racism that they suffered actually just made things worse. Instead, we need to not help them. Just a, a position he took. And also, he's apparently, like, got about 40 allegations of sexual harassment I think it's like into the 60s or 70s now. Like, I don't mean decades. Wild. I mean, I mean numerically. Yeah. We might have someone who is more of a sex pest than Donald Trump. Yeah, it's it's crazy how they looked at Donald Trump and gone, yeah, we've got like a racist kind of sex pest billi uh, billionaire. Um, can we put up another one against him that's even more like that, even well, no, no, richer no. billionaire? He can't be a racist <laughs> sex pest because he goes to their dinner parties yeah. and is comfortable there, whereas. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't get invited to their dinner parties. So, you know, clearly he can't be, like, good or dignified. Whereas, like, th that's fundamentally the determining thing there. For a lot of people in power... Like, he's not actually a Democrat either. No, like, no, no. Oh, he, he was... <laughs> he he, he was gave a bunch of money to the DNC, like, in the past year. But before that, he was funding, like, Republican senators' campaigns. Yes. You know, he was... <laughs> uh, he funded Pat Toomey, who was a senator who very narrowly won his election... Uh, where if he'd lost it, the Democrats would have had control of the Senate. You know, he, he was... Like, they would have been able to stop Kavanaugh. Like, it would have been wild. Fuck. And, um, like, and, and now people are looking at this guy, you know, moderate centrists are looking at this guy. Well, I'm just going to forget using the word you, moderate, pissing you, me off. Yeah, but. no, you have these bizarre people like Joanne Reed, who literally took the thing saying, the thing it might take to beat a Republican is a Republican. And so... <laughs> This is this is the position they've got. It, this is this is the sort of oh. this is the establishment Democrat dream. They've basically convinced a Republican to run as a Democrat, and their their theory of change is the funny that, thing is I thought they'd already done that with uh, Joe Biden, but uh, <laughs> you I mean they tried that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton because the the reality is this worked back in 1992 with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton ran as basically a moderate Republican, and every time uh, like. George Bush Sr. tried to take a Republican stance, like, Bill Clinton would edge him out on the right. And so because that won, and because a lot of these people are still vestigial Clinton people, this is, this is what they believe in. They believe that America is a fundamentally conservative, reactionary place, and that uh, fundamentally you have to basically go to the like as far right as you can while still being distinguishably more progressive than the republicans and this also of course happens to be the exact thing in the economic interests of their donor class and of their consultant class uh, which isn't a coincidence obviously uh, but there's a reason that the the outriders and consultants and contractors and dnc people are so out of step with the voters in terms of who they're backing here that they would literally go for a like a guy who is in many ways as bad as trump really anti-union as well wildly anti-union uh wildly 
anti any sort of policy innovation that would help working people. He was against raising the minimum wage. Uh, Here's the thing, though. And you know you're saying he's got the bottomless pit of money. The, the, his his campaign would be terrible in a general election because he's at the moment he's he's ignored the first four states he's he's turned up late he's not really been um cr- he's not been held to account on these things he's not had scrutiny applied to him and um, we're going to see him in this first debate in las vegas this coming week he's going to the first time he's going to be up on stage with bernie sanders and those two i reckon are going to be you know the, the the central point. Loads of people are going to hit Bernie Sanders because he's the front runner, right? And because that's how these races work. You, if you're behind, you want to get in front of that person. But Bernie Sanders is going to go after Bloomberg. I'd be very surprised if he didn't. Um, in the same way they went after Pete Buttigieg. But it's not just Pete Buttigieg is taking money from the billionaires now. This guy is literally representing the billionaire class. It's also worth mentioning that the politicians here kind of hate Bloomberg they hate that he's buying his way into this yeah. very sincerely in the it, same it, way the thing is, it, it takes Senator, it takes Senator Sanders' arguments and it makes them more explicit than they ever could have been and not only that the money that um, Bloomberg is spending is you know it's kind of very soft support he's just getting this these votes from just blasting ads everywhere yeah and he, he's convincing people effectively that like well assuming that only a moderate can win he seems like a capable moderate and the question of whether or not he can like whether or not he would be better against trump uh, than sanders is not borne out in any polling almost all the polling suggests that he would have a harder time beating trump than sanders not least because like okay you've got two racist misogynistic billionaire plutocrats one of them depends on a voting base who doesn't like racist misogynists and plutocrats who's gonna win you tell me Uh, like it seems incredibly obvious that he will definitely lose against trump and so the reality is ultimately it comes down to we're eyeing up the potential of a convention where there is going to be multiple rounds of uh multiple rounds of voting to see who the candidate's going to be and the question is going to be if bernie sanders gets the most votes and the most candidates but not a majority of them are people going to go say well he didn't win a majority so clearly the majority wants a moderate so let's settle on the moderate we get yeah this in spite of the fact that by the way uh yahoo and yougov uh, did some polling recently putting every candidate in a one-on-one against every other candidate and bernie sanders against every other candidate got the preference bernie sanders is the candidate that most people would be happy with when you put him up against anyone else but the democratic establishment knows that if he gets in you know the people at the center of american progress won't be staffing the white house so i mean things to look out for as this as this race goes ahead would be who wins the states obviously and by what margins but one thing i'd say to look out for this race generally as the race goes on is going to be who drops out when because certain candidates dropping out earlier and like we say once they get down to less candidates most of that support seems to be moving towards Senator Sanders. He's second preference for Biden. He's second preference for Warren voters. Um, so, you know, how that field lays out as there's less and less candidates in it. Um, because it's worth mentioning, Bernie Sanders is the most liked Democratic politician currently in yeah. politics. Like, there's this ridiculous idea that centrists have that his support is marginal, that he has a ceiling that he's going to hit any moment now that a more moderate candidate candidate doesn't. And there is seemingly nothing actually backing that up. He appears to just be a genuinely very popular man, a man who is genuinely more popular than anyone else. Now, the question of whether or not he can win and whether he's worth supporting is a different thing, but he appears to just be the most popular candidate. So I don't know what else these people want other than for him to lose so they can still stay in their positions of institutional power within the Democratic Party. Before we finish, just one other candidate that's running. We mentioned her already, Amy Klobuchar. She's a senator from Minnesota, um, one of the more moderate candidates. Deeply one, abusive boss. Yeah, one of the more honest moderate candidates as well. She's not trying to pretend to be something. Else. She's literally honest. She's just like, I just I just want to be a centrist, and I, that's literally what I'm doing. She's not, she's not doing the Pete Buttigieg thing of like pretending yeah. to be... The something. value of our hopes is in our values, <laughs> yeah. you know? We've got this clip from her this week, which is her fucking whips. speaking to a reporter... Um, who asks a very simple question if you're running to be president of the United States, which is basically, who is the president of Mexico? Tell me a bit about them, like their policies or their politics, and maybe even just who they are. 
What do you know about the Mexican president? Okay, well, what I will tell you is that I will visit Mexico in the first uh, 100 years. 100, you, 100 days. 100 days. I will you visit are, are, uh, there. are yes. running for president. Yes. You would like to be de Democratic uh, candidate. Yeah. What do you know about the Mexican president now? Uh, well, I know that he is uh, elected in the last few years. I don't know him personally. I've met with the ambassador, and I was actually supportive of the trade agreement. So I worked okay. with the embassy on that. They came to meet you with know, me. And I ask because it's so important, especially yes. Nevada, California, Arizona, Texas. This yes. is our neighbor to the south. Yeah. Do you know anything about him, specifically his politics, what he's doing, since this would be the country you would share a border with. Um, Anything well, you can tell me about him? I just, I know that they are our neighbors, and regardless of who the leader is, that it is someone that I will work with. Do, do you, I, I'm sorry to ask <laughs> this, but do you know who he is? Do you know his name? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I know that he is the Mexican president. But so. can you tell me his name? Uh, no. So. Don't you think it would be important, if you're running for president, to know who the president of Mexico the country to the south of the United States is yes. because it. Oh, it's painful. It's so painful to Am watch. Amlo. His name is at. Oh, that that's the abbreviation of his name that he's pop like popularly known by. Yeah. Uh, he's a socialist. He's a sort of Bernie Sanders type candidate. He's a, a good dude. He took in Evo Morales when he was uh, kicked out of his country by the coup. So the, here's the thing, like. I didn't know all that stuff that you're saying. I mean, I generally knew. I do, I, but I, 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 I'm more deserving of being president than Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> yeah, I knew that kind of stuff in a general sense, not the kind of key details. But, Elected but, last year, but not I'm the not last couple of years. I'm not running for US president, which is a country on the border of that country. Like, No, neither <laughs> have I, but this is making me reconsider things. It's nuts that she couldn't even just reel off a name. Yeah. Or even the abbreviation. Or, or anything about him. Yeah, it, it's 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 like not lot not low. Like that that should be a disqualifying kind of thing, right? Who who can still support a candidate after they do stuff like that? Yeah. it's like saying you don't know who Justin Trudeau is, right? Yeah, it's like you wouldn't know who uh, you know Leah Varadkar is. It's yeah. it's kind of like come on, like you should know these things. Anyway, one last thing before we finish, we'll talk about Parasite for like two minutes. Hell yeah, uh, Parasite, a openly socialist film about class struggles. Uh, one best picture, which fucking rules, uh, because at the Oscars, uh, yeah, like weirdly it won because it's the kind of film that isn't supposed to win. It's the kind of like garish, provocative, uh, like sort of East Asian cinema that's been just widely beloved by film nerds for ages, but like isn't supposed to be appreciated by the establishment. So now that one of the best ones of those won best picture, it's like fuck. Can we get Takashi Miike one of these? Uh, like, can can we get the guy who did, like, Old Boy and the Handmaiden Best Picture? Because he fucking deserves it. I've still not seen it. Um, I'm waiting for it to quieten down in the cinemas a little bit so I can It's have... good, it's good. Also, uh, the winner of Best Documentary, I believe, American Factory, uh, the filmmaker behind that is a socialist who ended her Oscar speech with Workers of the World Unite. Fun fact, uh, that, that documentary was funded by Obama's production company so I guess he was a communist secretly after all <laughs> uh, and also uh, it's worth mentioning the Oscar for best actor went to confirmed Bernie bro uh, Joaquin Phoenix who I believe has maxed out his donation to Bernie Sanders so interesting what a guy anyway yeah. this has been off the fence if you've been listening to this podcast for the first time make sure to hit follow on soundcloud.com slash off the fence you can subscribe on Stitcher on Apple Podcasts on Podbean, wherever else you're listening to this on. You can download it on SoundCloud as well. That might be a bit easier for you if you're offline. Um, on Twitter, we're at Off The Fence Talk. You can follow us on there. I'm tweeting from that right now. <laughs> yeah, so go do that. I've been James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. Cheers. Cheers.